y'all. You are listening to Revolutionary Hood Rat with Kim Young of Dope Black Social Worker. And welcome back. Y'all, I feel like it has been a month of Sunday since we have been together with a new episode. And so I'm not going to waste any time. Let's go ahead and jump right into this week's episode and the revolutionary news that we have. So revolutionary news this week goes out to Collective 365. If you are unfamiliar with Collective 365, they were founded by Fatima Smith in 2020, along with 11 other co-founders. And so Collective 365 is this dope network of individuals who are really seeking to learn about the needs of community through service, engagement, educational and networking events. And then thinking about ways to support communities of color through philanthropic giving. So all of them words to essentially say like some black and brown folk and some white co-accomplices got together and figured out how can we create a giving circle, right? To be able to, you know, disseminate resources, AKA money into communities of color with um, black and brown led organizations, either nonprofit, LLCs, or just folks doing dope work in community that need access to means money to do their work, to run their programs and provide their services. And so Collective 365 really wants to support the work of community organizers, activists, entrepreneurs, and organizations that may not have access to traditional funding sources. And so they believe that the community is an expert and seeks to learn from community how financial resources can be used. And so one of the co-founders, Allison, who's also a social worker, said communities of color have always been, have always had the ambition and tenacity to uniquely serve their communities, but have lacked access to funding to do so. And so with Collective 365, they seek to be able to address that. So they were launched in Juneteenth of 2020. And since their launch, y'all, they have provided $55,000 in grant funding. And so Allison also goes on to say that this is about legacy for me. Black and brown folks have always supported organizations financially, but those organizations put us in the driver's seat. But this organization puts us in the driver's seat, excuse me. We are making the application easy and letting the culture tell us where to invest. I love everything about Collective 365. I love everything about Fatima. That's one of my co-accomplices in this work. And so I really wanna encourage folks to really tap into what they are doing, connect with uh, Collective 365, share the information about Collective 365. If you have access to resources and means, give to Collective 365. And please check them out on, I think they're on Instagram, Facebook, and then like hit up their website, get to know the work, get involved. All right. I don't have any Earth is Ghetto this week because I have um, another interview, another guest. I promise, though, I'm going to be back next week with some Earth is Ghetto because I got shit I need to get off my chest. You feel me? But let me go ahead and introduce the guest that we have for the week. It's my friend Robin, y'all. Robin is a graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University School of Social Work, and she's currently working at a macro level at the macro level for a national nonprofit. Robin is also the talent behind Marble Moon Interiors. Y'all, my friend launched an interior decorating business and still is out here practicing as a social worker. Um, But she launched this interior decorating business to transform the homes and lives of others. Robin Robin is passionate about using color, sourcing sustainability, and loves a good houseplant or two. I do as well, but y'all, I'll be here. 
I'd be killing him, but you know, we could talk about that later. Um, when Robin is not doing all these dope and amazing things in community and not decorating, um, she's trying to just live in a world, trying to leave the world a better place. Excuse me. Robin loves to travel with her family and enjoys the great outdoors. We had a really good conversation about pivoting in this field, about finding balance between professional and home life. And just having the radical imagination and belief that things don't have to be the way they are. So what type of future would we want to create for ourselves? And what type of legacy we're trying to leave behind in the field of social work? So I hope y'all enjoy our conversation. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Oh my goodness, Robin. (laughs) Thank you so much for um, making the space and time to chat with me. I'm really excited as you open up that bottle of wine. I wish I would have known. I would have got myself a little bottle too. I know, I could have poured you a virtual glass. You could, you could still pour me a virtual <laughs> glass. Um, so we'll like, you know, just mostly a conversation. I'm really excited to dive into some of these different things around the things that we have in common, the things that we definitely didn't have in common throughout our experiences and the things that kind of bond and brought us together. Um, where I really want to start, because I'm not even sure I know this story, Robin, is how you even found your pathway to this work. How'd you get here? to social work and yeah. uh, long story short, I came to VCU actually um, for theater and I was in the theater program, auditioned, accepted and was in about a semester, almost into my second semester. And I just recognized that I loved theater, but it was a passion and it was something I wanted to do in my life, but not necessarily a career path I wanted to go. And I had been really moved coming to Richmond from kind of like a rural suburban area um, by the number of people experiencing homelessness and living outside. And it just really bothered me at the, say it the easiest way. It just really bothered me. I just felt like this isn't right. Here we are VCU surrounded with, you know, dorms everywhere, food in the food hall, all Mm -hmm. of these resources at our disposal, which of course we pay for with student loans, but (laughs) I digress. Um, and it just, it just didn't sit with me. And so I, I was trying to figure out like, okay, well, what, what do I want to do? And the, at the core of what I knew I wanted to do was to, to, to help in whatever capacity I hadn't figured out what that looked like yet. And then one of my, um, quad mates in the dorms was taking an elective in social work and we were just talking and she was telling me about it. I was like, wait, 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 wait. So there's a profession where you are actually helping people like that's your job you know I think the most I knew about helping would be teaching nursing you know stuff like nursing that, right? yeah, which yeah. I can't ever go near blood and I was like I don't think I could handle that many kids at a time so where where do I go <laughs> so that was kind of the the odd way that landed me there um and not a path I would have projected for myself yeah yeah see that's that's wild because my story is very similar to yours by like not even knowing about social work yeah. or finding that, oh, there's like a place I can get paid and like get in trouble and help people. Let me go figure that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead and pour your glass of wine because this, yeah, pour it up. Pour Poured. it up. Oh, let's, let's get ready. into it then. Because look, cheers. obviously, cheers. Obviously, I'm not white, but you're white, Robin. And we both went through uh, social work programs. We both went to Virginia Commonwealth social work program. And I went to school with a lot of folks that look like you, but I've actually never Mm -hmm. actually had the opportunity to have a conversation around like what the perspective of like 
from your yes. perspective, going through a social work program, being the dominant representation of that program, what was that like for you? You know, I think it wasn't until sometime between like that last semester and when I ended up coming back to get my master's that I think I was more aware of that role and power and privilege in a way that I just had never been, I never had needed to be, right? Like existing as a white woman in spaces, I wasn't really conscious of my race and what that meant um, in different, you know, rooms that I would be in and what that meant in terms of the rooms I could walk into and things like that. So I think in undergrad, I was not, I just wasn't there. I wasn't there. And I think the idea around social justice was really appealing to me as part of what social work as a movement could be. And so I think that's what kind of pulled me down this radical path. <laughs> you know, I went out and I practiced for a few years and was so you took a break. In, like you had a I break. Did. I didn't go undergrad straight. and grad school. Ooh, so how much yeah. how much time was in between? Three Let's see, I finished my bachelor's 2006 because I switched my major. I would have graduated in 2005. And then I came back in 2009 and graduated in 2011 with my master's. So and I'm really bit. glad you I lived. did. And I'm telling you. It makes a difference. Huge because I would have just gone on this path that I thought I should, as opposed yeah. to like, what was the path that I had explored enough of the divergent paths to figure out not my, not really for me. This one's for me. And that's really what it took to, because my passion was still around housing and homelessness. And I moved to California for a few years, um, following Gibson, my now husband, then boyfriend, just kind of on a whim was like, all right, you had to move to California for work. I'll meet you there in a few months when I graduate. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it was a very tough job market and I had no network, no connections. Um, so it took me a while, but I was first, a case manager in a skilled nursing facility. And that experience changed my life because I saw how many families and individuals, whether they were aging or had some type of like, you know, life altering accident that changed their mobility and their ability to care for themselves and things like that, you know, people's lives are really disrupted. By some type of health critical health issue and then it's like well your time's up your insurance says uh you gotta go you gotta go and we hope you figure it out which that's the simplest version of it but as you can imagine i was stuck there was nothing i could do to challenge those systems in place that were why those stays were designated to be the you know the amount that they were or the resources that people could get in the community i could connect them with resources that were available, I could listen and be a caring ear for what they were going through. But at the end of the day, there wasn't much I could actually do. Mm -hmm. And so I just found myself super frustrated. Yeah, but it and, almost, but it's like being frustrated with um, experiences, right? Being frustrated because mm -hmm. you went out there, 
you tried it, you're doing the work of like, oh no, I think there's more that I can do. Let me see what else I need to go learn to become, to, be, you know, to figure exactly. out what my next steps are. And I'm sharing that because it, for me, when I was going through grad, grad school, it was very apparent the ones who jumped, because I took a break too, mm-hmm. not as long as yours, but I had a break between like undergrad and grad school, but it was very apparent the ones that jumped yes. from undergrad straight to grad school. And I'm like, oh wow, like you, you haven't, like <laughs> you haven't experienced you haven't experiences it and like you sitting in school being shocked that they're like poor yes. people and like all this stuff is happening inside of these different systems because you haven't gone and touched some earth like you haven't worked with exactly anyone. right yeah and I will say taking that lived experience as a social work professional before I went into my master's program um I kind of was like really caught off guard by this dichotomy of clinical and macro yeah. and really found myself drawn to more of that meso space of still working with individuals and groups and families and community and changing systems. So um, it took me a bit, but I pretty quickly figured out I wanted to go the macro track, right. And focusing on policy um, administration practice and, it was really the opportunity around grassroots organizing and legislative mm-hmm. policy change that like solidified that for me. I was like, that is how I want to make a difference and disrupt these systems that are in place. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Because you you have done a lot of grassroots organizing, even in the um, positions and spaces that you hold to include like circulating resources, power, mm-hmm. money, information. Um, what does that look like from your place of power and privilege being able to, I guess, like walk alongside folk in community and Mm -hmm. just have your name be solid and then enrichment in general amongst just some black organizers here? Like, what is that like? Right. How'd you gain that trust? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because kind of back to like recognizing as a white woman in the program, looking around, it was the majority of my peers were white but what I found is it was my peers who were um, coming to this like they knew why they wanted to be there they didn't just go from undergrad to grad they had a reason they were there that they were passionate about and those tended to be sometimes older students yeah um, and often like predominantly black students also some Hispanic and Asian but I felt like VCU at the time when I was there was really like mostly white students and black students. It was pretty mm-hmm. black, black and white, literally. Um, and I just kind of gravitated towards people who just were real and had that. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, like, I'm a nerd. I love school. I love learning. So I took it very seriously. Um <laughs> But all that is to say, I was really seeing this path for myself right around community organizing and housing. And that was a lot of the case studies I was looking at and like the history of social work and Dorothy Height, right, who was here from Richmond and her role. She was a huge inspiration to me and her role, particularly in housing. But as I got kind of further into this space, and I feel like if you really challenge yourself and are open to it in the field of social work, you have to do a lot of introspection and have honest conversations with yourself. And I'm just a very open person. I always have been. And so I think that further led me down the path where I recognized the communities I wanted to support in 
having housing as a right and having housing, you know, more accessible and affordable. I wasn't a individual from that community, whether it was like the actual community itself, um, place-based or income and race. And I recognized that that wasn't my role. That wasn't my role to, to do that. And so that's where I kind of figure out, okay, I think the way I do this is, is really making policy change, lifting up the voices of the people who are most directly impacted and making sure that we are centering solutions based on their wants and needs that they express. Um, so whether Revolutionary, from, right? Like just the most yeah. simplest thing. It's at the end of the day, it is. It's the simplest thing. We create all these systems that make yeah. that so complicated when it's just really point A to B instead of we do like A, C, X. Then make a U-turn and start Back all to over B. Again, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I do, cons- I mean, I first consider it an honor to be a friend of Black organizers, um, someone that I know my integrity and relationships and reputations have, um, you know, something I take very seriously. And I think I've been able to do that with that openness and open heart, open mind, um, and just loving people. Yeah. I really do. I just love people. Yeah, I, I, I've witnessed it. This is very true. Um, and even kind of speaking in those, kind of staying in the vein of loving people, but transitioning a little bit because you mm-hmm. have your own tiny people inside of your household and <laughs> right you're somebody's mom you're somebody's husband but you're also some you're, you're you right you're your whole person yeah. and there's a lot of folks who find themselves in these various professions of having to use their hearts and service and helping other people right you go out there in the world you do good then you got to come back home and figure out Ooh, like do I even have what I need to offer it up to my own tiny humans in my household yes. and my own partner in my household? So just for you, how are you finding that balance or are you still working to find the balance between home and work? Always working on it. Always working on it. Um but what I can say is that I kind of had it like shoved in my face at one point when I recognized I was not setting myself or my family up for success I was Mm -hmm. like really bit into this like piece of cake that's poison says you can have it all (laughs) no you can't um all is too much shit if we're being honest all is way too much it is it is I just I never had that perspective as kind of a natural people pleaser and overachiever and things like that that I've really come to understand about myself and why I've had those traits um, less so now because of the work I've done. But I was literally working nonstop. I was working nonstop and I was passionate about what I was doing and I believed in it. But there was also this part of me that I felt like it was important to be a role model for my children Mm. to be, you know, uh, you know, we are two parent income, two income earner household and at the time I was making the majority of the income and so like that little bit of pressure yeah um I just took it on in a way that wasn't healthy and it took me like one day I'll tell you the story it's not my proudest moment but I think it's important to be honest about uh I think we were like I had to go to the Kroger or something and June was somewhere between like not quite 16 months. So still Mm -hmm. a baby, barely a toddler. 
And it was just like the timing that we went, something we did, it was just all off. It was set up to fail from the beginning. And she pretty much was like screaming, crying mm-hmm. the entire drive home. And at one point I just lost it. And I screamed at her to like, stop screaming. Yeah. You know, just, and I was like, oh, whoa, mm-mm. this is not, it's not healthy. It's not who I want to be. And uh, I sought help. I went and, you know, sought help. I was worried maybe I had postpartum depression, but pretty much I found a great therapist that worked with me and trusted. And she was like, um, after a few sessions, I don't think you are clinically suffering with postpartum depression. I think you were sleep deprived. Mm. And it was because I was working all the time, like crazy hours, breastfeeding, um, feeding on demand at night when my children would wake up. So, I mean, just, and I love sleep. Like I and everyone who is around me loves me when I have sleep otherwise (laughs) it's hard it's hard right and even thinking and I've seen it in most recent years I'm not anybody's birth mother have I had my hands in nurturing young people for a number of years absolutely I have but have I birthed no babies hell no and I'm not really interested (laughs) (laughs) You know yourself. That's what's important. I've seen an increase in transparency from um, just moms in in this field, right? And social work therapists, people who use their heart, where they even talk about their own parental anxiety increasing given the nature of the work. Right. Like they're out yes. in the world. They're seeing so much evil. They're bearing witness to things are asked to do things. They're coming across things, hearing things. And then they have to go back and try to be somebody's mom after seeing yes. so much shit in the world. How is that even showing up for you in the balancing of it all? You know, and I. I want to say that because my work at a systems level is slightly removed from the immediate trauma that people are experiencing in them. So people in direct practice, whether that's therapy, case management, you name it, they're working one-on-one with these individuals sometimes in those moments of crisis. And so I can only imagine like that flooding your system, your body, you have to have a reaction to that and then work to counter that to be present would be like, I'm pretty sure that would be impossible for me. I just, I think mm. I know my strengths you know you. and that would not be one of them. But even with not having that exact experience as a social work professional, to your point, just the weight of responsibility that I think we can put on ourselves as professionals as having to like be a savior or fix things. And, you know, that can really quickly sneak back into our work and you can't, yeah, you true. can't do any of that. So then it sets <laughs> you up for ultimately like, feeling like you're failing. So I, I think some of that, especially when I was doing a lot of policy and advocacy campaign was working on Medicaid expansion, working on um, housing and some other things, you know, that I knew that those policies made a huge impact in the lives of others. And so when they weren't, you know, when it was like demanding all of my time and energy and effort, yeah, it was really hard to come home and be a super present parent. Yeah. And I think in a way I didn't anticipate and I, through becoming a parent, learned a lot about myself you know, I imagine you, so. you're kind of forced to look in the mirror and be like okay is this really the parent I want to be is this the person I want to be and, and kids are honest 
Yes, they are. And you are <laughs> you are raising some very honest and brave and courageous young people. So I imagine. Yes, particularly <laughs> my my spicy one. She really <laughs> keeps it keeps me cool. But, um, you know, I just think it took. Unfortunately, it really took the pandemic mm. to make it that much more like, no, no, really, you you can't have it all. I think it was like the first day, you know, my kid's school was like canceled for the, you know, we thought it was gonna be like two weeks yeah. and they'll be in the rest of the year. Yeah. The next year was virtual. So even before we knew all that was possible, it was like the very first work, traditional work day that the kids were going to be home and not have school. I was crying by 9 a.m. Mm. I was like, this isn't going to work. Nope. Mm. And I had to like, set some boundaries for myself and like really lower my expectations to be completely honest because I just it's like I couldn't be my daughter was four my son was seven I mean it was like they need mom right like yes yes (laughs) yeah yeah so that 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 is truly what started my transformation in like decoupling my identity for myself and my job, like whether that is my job as a social worker, my job, you know, who's paying, you know, my paycheck and the sense of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sense of loyalty, right? Mm. To that nonprofit company, you name it. Just recognize like, I don't owe anyone that who's going to remember at the end of the day, it's going to be my kids and the people I love, you know? So that started to shift things. And I and I think that that helped me be a better colleague too and giving yeah. even more space and grace to people. Um, but yeah, it was kind of all that. And then it was like, okay, well, let my identity in my job take a backseat, not have all myself worked up in that. Where and I was like, um, so what now? <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of through some self-exploration I was actually like do I want to go do a complete 180 and I was doing a lot of work with food justice organizations and organizers and just have so much love for that work and was like do I want to have a more direct hand in that and then I was like well no remember you went through this when you were grad school like that's not your job your job is use your power and privilege to connect the dots and the resources Mm -hmm. so what I decided was I'm going to keep on keeping on with what I'm doing I'm doing it well I'm working with people in the community and in my own organization that I love and so I recognized I needed to tap into my own creativity and stop making excuses about that yes let's get into that right um because I I was so excited when you shared just what you have had in motion to think about like all right if I'm going to find, if I have this space now to think about what can I do creatively, where my other passions lie, and it doesn't all have to be wrapped up in social work. And I remember like, we were probably, we were drinking wine in front of Cezanne, like <laughs> rest in peace to Cezanne. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, started to have just this conversation about transitioning away from the work. And you had shared with me, which I wasn't aware of at the time, is like you had heard about the idea of being able to retire from social work from me, right? Yes. <laughs> and it's like me, yes. I'm, right? I'm younger than you. I haven't been in this work, in this field as long as you have. And I was like, what you mean you heard it? You didn't know you could do it. But then like the more nope. that I, more I encounter people um, and the more I get to hear folks' story, 
I had no idea that people weren't thinking about leaving the field of social work because y'all know I'm out. Yes. <laughs> I'm not doing this forever. I do not want to do this forever. This work is not sustainable. There are so many other things that I want to do. I want an easy life. There's yeah. nothing easy about social work. I don't care what anybody tries to tell anyone. There is nothing easy about social work. Use a lot of yourself. Use a lot of your heart. You have to sacrifice a lot of your goodness to be in this work. And if yes. you don't know how to give it back to yourself, if you don't know how to separate your personal and professional identity, like you're just not going to make it in this field. And so when you started thinking about what you wanted to kind of complement and then possibly mm -hmm. transition fully, who knows? I was like, yo, I'm so excited. Um, just the idea of the interior design, the style, the fashion. Now, we both love prints and patterns. And we yes. like to get cozy, like go and look at things that have prints. <laughs> so please like share with the folks because I'm excited just about your interior design and that process you took to get where you are with that. Yeah, thank you. No, and seriously, I I really give you credit for voicing that that is a possible reality that you do not have to do this forever I mean I actually never considered it and then it's like <laughs> you're like well wait why did I never consider it you know and you're just like man what was I buying into here um and I think it's like you know part of well I've invested a lot of time money relationships and all of those things don't actually have to go away though if no. you were to make a career shift and maybe it's not even a career shift maybe it's you know, a, a better alignment of what yeah. you're passionate about and like your social work ethics and principles are still there. They come, mm -hmm. they, you know, carry with you. So um, like I said, I, I often made excuses for myself that like, I'm creative, but you know, I just don't, I don't like have like the skills. I can't draw, you know, I don't know how to do, you know, um, what do you call it? CAD which is like design software for, or, you know, whatever I'd have to do, I'd have to really, you know, wasn't, I was doubting myself essentially. Mm -hmm. I didn't, and I can't remember exactly what it took, but I caught myself and recognized I'm making an excuse. I do have the talent. I do have the creativity. I'm missing the skill yeah. and skills can be built. And so I started to figure out what were the ways I could build those skills and found out about a certificate program, interior decorating at University of Richmond, you know, talk to some people like, how was it? What do you think? Would you do it again? And just decide I'm doing it. And it was an entire, you know, academic year every Tuesday night for three hours. And it was the thing I looked forward to most. Mm. Um because again, like I said, I'm kind of a nerd. I love learning. So give me something new to learn about. I'm all in, you know, just <laughs> devouring information, podcasts, books, websites, videos, you name it. Um, but, you know, that was, that gave me the, I think the credentials or the credibility because I have plenty of experience. I love decorating my own house. Anybody in my family is always asking mm -hmm. me, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Friends. And I just recognize that that would be something that I could not only know how to do better, but potentially make money doing. Yeah. And I'm still not a hundred percent sure what this timeline will look like for me. I gave myself two years post that program, you know, trying to get my brand and my business out there, developing clients, developing a portfolio that after those two years, I would assess like, okay, 
also financially, can I make this make sense? Is the way I want to do this a path that would be providing financial stability for myself and my family? And so I don't have to figure that out today. And the nice thing is I've found a pretty good balance in my day job, my family and my interior design. And so right now I'm kind of like, all right, I'm not messing with a good thing, (laughs) you know, and, and I love it. I mean, I just love, like you said, patterns and prints and textures and contrast and, and helping um, people. And and that's the piece and helping people. And (laughs) here's the thing I haven't figured out and I'm, I'm going to get there. And this might be like the kick and the asset I need to do it. But I, if I ever were to make a total transition, it's really important to me that I am not just having wealthy clients and making their <coughs> already rich lives richer. But how do we ensure that everybody can have beautiful spaces? How do we ensure that we can all benefit regardless of our income from a space that creates joy and peace and, and calm in our lives? Yeah, I think I recall us having a conversation somewhere when you were talking about wanting to fuse the passion of like the interior design and the social work stuff, like even thinking how your design services can be used in community spaces for nonprofits, for like when they're designing their new offices or shelters or community centers or rec centers. Um, But like, how do we just, how can you merge those things together? Because to your point earlier, just because folks think about transitioning from the actual field of social work, it doesn't mean that our values and ethics and things we're passionate about have to leave us too. We can find new ways to lean into those things, right? So like when I say I want to leave, when I'm done with social work, I mean, I'm done with the way I've known it. I don't want to do an assessment. I don't want to write a note. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to do none of this shit. No, more it doesn't mean i'll stop being a social worker can't get rid of that shit but all this other stuff i don't want to sit and talk to somebody every day about what's going on with their life and that's not being rude i just don't want to do it anymore it is and if only i always talk about like if i had this magic wand of self-awareness because for people who are who are done but they haven't made that shift like it's not helping them nobody spiritually emotionally physically or the people that they're intending to help they're actually doing more harm they're making it worse i always said i want to leave before i ever know what burnout is i've never experienced burnout i want to be gone before i ever know what it is and i want more social workers to think about like leaving before they ever know what burnout is not just jumping from job to job but like what is your transition out of this field because it's possible you don't have to keep doing it this way um, we talked about your interior design company, but you did not name it. What's the oh, name see, of it, not, Robin? I really should brand myself better here. Yeah, uh, so my you do fabulous design. work. Thank you. So <laughs> my business is Marble Moon Interiors, and um, you can find my website, marblemooninteriors.com. I'm on Instagram as well. Um, I am passionate about color. I like to say that I'm a maximalist with a heart for minimalism. Um, And I truly just love the creativity of having this, this business. I mean, it's, it's really a lot of fun. And I want to keep doing it and making sure that it stays fun. Yeah, because everyone needs fun in their lives. Like you can't just 
be so focused on your career and your profession and not forget to have fun. And what we talked about a little bit earlier, like when we allow our personal identities to get wrapped up in our professional identity, we think that shit is fun. We think it's our whole life when it's not. Like we haven't actually unlocked fun yet because we haven't figured out who we are outside of our jobs. Yes. The moment that we can figure out who we are outside of our jobs, I think that's when you really start living. I agree. And I turned 40 this year. And I feel like that was all kind of building up to that point of um, like my own transformation and thinking about this new phase of life and what that means. Like, you know, every decade that we have the privilege of living on this earth and being with people we love and trying to make a difference, you know, I try not to take that for granted. And it's really easy to fall in a trap of feeling like, oh, I'm getting older, but I, I love mm-hmm. getting older. I feel Me like too. my skincare routine got real good when I got older. So I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm going to take care of you now. Um, now that the age is starting to, you know, yeah. show its little glimmers there. But yeah, I mean, I just think that's the thing. Like you can recognize that there's a whole phase of your life you haven't yet even dreamed of. So dream about it. Start dreaming. Have dreaming scheme. Like haven't even imagined what is possible. Haven't yeah. even imagined what is possible. So when it's all said and done, because you and I are both committed to not doing this work this way forever. And um, so when it's all said and done, and when you think about the legacy you left behind in the field of practicing as a social worker, what is that? The legacy I hope to leave behind is one that made a difference by lifting up the voices of people in our community, specifically Richmond, since that's where I am and I'm based, and ensuring that they had better access to self-determination, you know, really working towards empowerment in owning their health. And I think none of that can be possible without that trust. So the legacy I hope I leave is that that one of trust that I um, really made a difference when it came down to it. Um, one thing for me, I always kind of see myself in this in this way, and because I'm part of a large national nonprofit and I have this brand power behind that and this science base, you know that is a privilege that I can't take for granted. And so there are going to be people who will talk to me, money that I can, you know, raise, uh, interventions I can help make possible because of that. And so I try to use that same power and privilege to bring in others, uh, particularly organizations that are small, minority-owned businesses and nonprofits, people who are in the community doing the work however I can connect those dots that's that's what I see my goal and purpose is yeah I love it I love it and I choose to believe even though there's not a lot of evidence but I choose to believe that there are more social workers moving in this world like you than not Mm -hmm. um don't have a lot of evidence for it unfortunately but I choose to believe it because that's why I think I have to maintain some level of hope as a black person practicing in this field oftentimes ignored oftentimes lacking visibility oftentimes not supported believed or lifted up 
right? But I believe that like the greatest way that we can do anything in support of those who are in service too is to do those things together. And I am grateful to have found another co-accomplice. As you yeah. know, and as anyone that knows me, I don't, I don't befriend a lot of white people. I don't trust a lot of white people. I don't have a lot of evidence that trusting white people works out for me, but you are one that I've trusted. And I'm grateful I'm for you. Yeah, I am grateful for you. This is not like my I voted for Obama, but like I think now I have maybe four <laughs> white friends. <laughs> I just have four now. <laughs> well, and now now it's the responsibility of those four white people, you know, that we have to do the work to help the other white people. Yeah, that's y'all responsibility. We talk about that. Yeah. I am I'm grateful that um we found our way to each other's lives. Yes. Um, for the wine we get to drink, the shit we get to talk, the fashions we get to put on, because you are also very stylish and very fashionable, and the things that we get to go see together. Also, if you didn't know, and I'm going to just share while we're still recording, Homerama's coming back in October. <gasps> We're going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text That's you. soon. Ooh, <laughs> I gonna, can't wait. I'm going to text you the link. But Homerama is coming back. Robin, 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 thank you so much for taking some time, for sharing all that you were able to come in and share and the stories that you told. I'm honored to know you and grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful for your friendship and to know you and work alongside you. I truly hope that y'all were able to grab something from that conversation between Robin and myself. Um, and so the good black word for the week. In my own practice, what I have been working through lately are like these four simple truths, which are essentially life is uncomfortable. Desires cause discomfort. It is possible to end discomfort. And meditation and what is known as the Eightfold Path can help lead discomfort, right? And so the Eightfold Path, because I'm not sure if I have talked about this before or if folks are unfamiliar with it, it's this idea of like wisdom training, ethics training, and awareness training. And so under wisdom training, it's like, do I have the right understanding and the right thought? Under ethics training, do I have the right speech, the right actions, and the right livelihood? And under awareness training, do I have the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right concentration? And so with like these four simple truths, with this understanding that, you know, life is uncomfortable, what I have been reflecting on most recently is uh, I have encountered a lot of people lately whose life is incredibly uncomfortable. And I have bore witness to what seems like a lot of self-inflicted suffering, right? This doesn't negate the fact that to exist under the current conditions of society, suffering is naturally there to meet us. But there's also like this level of suffering and pain that we can inflict on ourselves when we're so attached to desires, which are essentially things that are outside of our control. And so I have witnessed a lot of people who just appear incredibly uncomfortable in their lives incredibly uncomfortable in their relationships and their bodies and their thoughts with their minds with themselves and not really knowing what to do about that but also acknowledging like there really isn't nothing I can do about their discomfort aside from show up as me and hopefully allow for the way that I experience this world how I 
sit with myself, live with myself, my thoughts, my beings, my, my movements, my actions, my concentration, my mindfulness, my livelihood, all of these things, that it could hopefully do something positive, <laughs> for lack of better words, for other people. And so my good black word has much to do with folks are really suffering right now. People are not well right now. And um, if you are operating from a place where you are overflowing with good because you have been able to practice good towards yourself, you've made a commitment to create no, create no evil so you can practice good towards yourself, which means you can extend that to other people. I want to continue to encourage you to do that. People need goodness right now. But only offer it up if you have it to give. If you do not have goodness to offer because you need it for yourself, give it to you first. And once you are filled with it, once you are committed to not creating any evil, once you are committed to practicing good towards yourself, please turn that outward. Because folks are in dire need of any goodness that they can get that folks can offer if they have it to give. Um, and so that is my good black word for the week. And y'all, we will be back next week with a new episode. And I can't wait. So thank y'all for sticking with me, standing by me, and giving me a shot. Y'all be well, and we will talk next week.